This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and welcome to the program. We start today with an astonishing and quite wonderful story about a student leader, Mother Teresa, and some writing on a wall. The student was, in 1968, a 19-year-old sophomore at Harvard, and his name was Kent Keith. He'd written a treatise on student leadership entitled The Quiet Revolution, Dynamic Leadership in Student Council, in which he listed ten instructions he called the Paradoxical Commandments. Anyway, several years later, in September 1997, a much older Kent Keith, was at a Rotary Club meeting, and this is what happened. We usually begin each meeting with a prayer or a thought for the day, and a fellow Rotarian of mine got up and noted that Mother Teresa had died, and said that in her memory he wanted to read a poem she had written that was titled Anyway. I bowed my head in contemplation and was astonished to recognize what he read. It was eight of the original ten paradoxical commandments. I went up after the meeting and asked him where he got the poem. He said it was in a book about Mother Teresa, but he couldn't remember the title. So the next night, I went to a bookstore and started looking through the shelf of books about the life and works of Mother Teresa. I found it on the last page before the appendices in Mother Teresa, A Simple Path. The paradoxical commandments had been reformatted to look like a poem, and they had been entitled... Anyway, there was no author listed, but at the bottom of the page it said, From a sign on the wall of Shishu Bhavan, the children's home in Calcutta. Mother Teresa thought that the paradoxical commandments were important enough to put on the wall of her children's home. That really hit me, because I had a lot of respect for Mother Teresa, and perhaps because I knew something about children's homes. That was when I decided to speak and write about the paradoxical commandments again, 30 years after I first wrote them. Now, as Buddhists say, everything is interconnected, so perhaps we shouldn't be too surprised that something from the pen of a teenage student at Harvard could find its way to the wall of an orphanage in Calcutta, India. But what was it that was on the wall? It was this, and remember Mother Teresa titled it Anyway. People are unreasonable, illogical and self-centered. Love them anyway. If you do good, people will accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Do good anyway. If you are successful, you win false friends and true enemies. Succeed anyway. The good you do will be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Honesty and frankness make you vulnerable. Be honest and frank anyway. What you spent years building may be destroyed overnight. Build anyway. 
People really need help, but may attack you if you help them. Help people anyway. Give the world the best you have, and you'll get kicked in the teeth. Give the world the best you've got anyway. It wasn't exactly what Kent Keith had written. Mother Teresa had left out two commandments, one of which read, The biggest men and women with the biggest ideas can be shut down by the smallest men and women with the smallest minds. Think big, anyway. And the other read, People favor underdogs but follow only top dogs. Fight for a few underdogs anyway. However, another report said she had included the one about fighting for the underdog. And another version, which you may have seen online, is called the final analysis and ends with a line, You see, in the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. But Kent Keith dislikes this line, writing, Jesus said that there are two great commandments, to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So in the final analysis, it's between you and God, but it is also between you and them. And when it comes to them, Jesus made it clear that we have to love people and help people anyway. We can't give up on them or ignore them or write them off. That is the point of the paradoxical commandments as well. We find meaning when we love and help people, no matter who they may be or how difficult they may be. We find meaning by loving and helping them anyway. What has all this Christian stuff got to do with a program on Buddhism? Well, quite a lot actually, particularly if we consider the Buddhist verses that we've been going through over the last few weeks. But before we go into that, let's think about our motivation as we usually do with every program. Let's try at least to set a bodhicitta motivation. That is, that this program becomes a cause for our enlightenment so that we have the greatest ability to help others. Thank you. The connection between the paradoxical commandments and the eight verses of mind training that we've been going through over the last few weeks comes in the fourth of the eight verses. Whenever I see beings that are wicked in nature and overwhelmed by violent negative actions and suffering, I shall hold such rare ones dear as if I'd found a precious treasure. Can you see how Kent Keith's instructions fit neatly into what the author of the eight verses, Langri Tampa, recommends in this verse? No matter how beings treat us, it is good to always try to be kind, but when they are really unbearable, not only should we continue to strive to act out of goodness, but we can actually try to see them as truly precious. As it was explained last week, such beings are giving us an exceptional opportunity to practice generosity and the other virtues, and to see where our antipathy and aversion lies. With such an understanding, we can increasingly transform the negative mindset, or the negative habit energy, as Thich Nhat Hanh calls it, and make spiritual progress. Kent Keith's commandments point to a kind of blueprint on how to do this. In his commentary to the eight verses, Dr. Alex Burson uses Geshe Chakawa as an example. Now remember, we introduced Geshe Chakawa at the beginning of this series of programs as the person who became intrigued by the verse of this text, which says to take a loss on oneself and give the victory to others. And this, this Geshe always prayed that he would be reborn in hell to help others there. But near death time, he saw signs 
that he was going to be born in a higher realm, and that made him very unhappy. That's really a challenge. What do we want? asks Dr. Burson. Do we want to go and try to help those who are in the most difficult situations? Or do we want things just to be really nice and easy? And that's a very good sign of self-cherishing, isn't it? If we just want things to be nice. He then says that one of his friends told him that when His Holiness the Dalai Lama was in Japan, he said he would like to be reborn in North Korea. Says Dr. Burson, So this is a good example of this wish to be reborn in the place where it's most difficult, so that he could possibly help the beings there. And how many of us would wish to be born in North Korea? Well, self-cherishing or not, not me, I can tell you that right here and now. But Dr. Burson does go on to point out that wherever we are born, we will always come across difficult beings that are not easy to help or even to tolerate. And so we have to develop great patience. When we're dealing with infantile people, they want this and then you give it to them and they don't really want it and it's not enough and they want something else and so on, we have to, instead of getting angry at them, realize that it's all because of their disturbing emotions, says Dr. Burson, and they're suffering because of that. Well, seeing that suffering, we can then develop a feeling of kindness for them. Dr. Burson then continues, So this boils down to that old phrase that we've seen so often. What do you expect from samsara? If people are going to kill themselves even, act completely self-destructively, what do we expect? That they're going to be nice to us or nice to other people? They're also going to be very destructive. And so they're appropriate objects for compassion because they're causing so much suffering to themselves and to others, not just to me. Getting angry at a person who is totally under the influence of disturbing emotions is like yelling at a two-year-old having a tantrum to stop acting like a two-year-old, says Dr. Burson. Rather, we have to accept the reality of what's happening, have some compassion and patience, and be kind. That's really the only way to deal with people who are so negative and situations that are so negative, he says. Otherwise, it just gets us totally depressed and angry. It's as if we're shouting, it's not fair, as if it should be fair that everybody is nice and kind and like that. They're not. We have to recognize that at various times everybody falls under the influence of disturbing emotions. He further points out that when we get angry, we weaken and even destroy our positive potential. So a difficult person is very helpful to us. If we can develop patience and kindness towards such a person, we build our positive potential instead of destroying it with anger. That means we're in a better position to help ourselves and others. He says, that's a real challenge, of course, unbelievable challenge. When somebody that we know personally has a tremendous amount of negativities and terrible problems, very often we just want to run away. And if we have to be with them, we get very annoyed. But it would be so much better to look at that person as a precious resource, as one's teacher, He says, we can think, wow, this is great. This is somebody that I can really practice with. And goes on that although it's very difficult, if we're going to have to live or work with such a person, our only other alternative is to be miserable. He uses Atisha, the great Indian master who revived Buddhism in Tibet, as an example. Atisha had an Indian cook who never did things the way that Atisha wanted, 
and was always a pain in the neck. The Tibetans asked Tisha, Why do you bring this terrible cook with you? You can send him home. We can cook for you. But Atisha replied, No, no, he's not just my cook. He's my teacher of patience. Later on, Atisha was trying to learn Tibetan, and one day, while eating, he found a little stone in the tsampa, the roasted barley flour that he was eating. Now, he didn't know what the word for stone was, so he used the word for a huge boulder and said, There's a boulder in my tsampa. All the Tibetans around collapsed on the ground with laughter. Ah, now I can send my cook back to India, said Atisha. You'll be my teachers of patience. Well, it's all very well practicing patience and kindness in such situations, but it could be nigh on impossible in more extreme circumstances. I've recently been reading Viktor Frankl's book Man's Search for Meaning, the first half of which deals with his life in the concentration camps in Nazi Germany during the war. Being a doctor, he writes primarily from a psychological point of view. That that doesn't detract in any way from the horror of the situation. Frankel writes well, from the heart as well as from the intellect, and in the truly fearful circumstances he describes, it would seem nigh on impossible to stay kind to beings who act more as demons than humans. Imagine what it must have been like to be forced to live on less than 300 grams of bread and 0.8 of a litre of soup a day until, as Frankel describes, when the last layers of subcutaneous fat had vanished and we looked like skeletons disguised with skin and drags, we could watch our bodies beginning to devour themselves. The organism digested its own protein. The muscles disappeared. Then the body had no powers of resistance left. One after another, the members of the little community in our hut died. Each of us could calculate with fair accuracy whose turn would be next and when his own would come. After many observations, we know the symptoms well, which made the correctness of our prognosis quite certain. He won't last long, or this is the next one, we whispered to each other, and when during our daily search for lice we saw our own naked bodies in the evening, we thought alike. This body here, my body, is really a corpse already. What has become of me? I am but a small portion of a great mass of human flesh, of a mass behind barbed wire, crowded into a few earthen huts, a mass of which a certain portion begins to rot because it has become lifeless. Imagine what it must be like to be incessantly beaten, tortured and threatened with death in circumstances he describes like this. I mentioned earlier how everything that was not connected with the immediate task of keeping oneself and one's closest friends alive lost its value. Everything was sacrificed to this end. A man's character became involved to the point that he was caught in a mental turmoil which threatened all the values he held and threw them into doubt. Under the influence of a world which no longer recognized the value of human life and human dignity, which had robbed man of his will and made him an object to be exterminated, having planned, however, to make full use of him first to the last ounce of his physical resources. Under this influence, the personal ego finally suffered a loss of values. If the man in the concentration camp did not struggle against this in a last effort to save his self-respect, he lost the feeling of being an individual, a being with a mind, with inner freedom, 
and personal value. He thought of himself then only as a part of an enormous mass of people. His existence descended to the level of animal life. The men were herded, sometimes to one place, then to another, sometimes driven together, then apart, like a flock of sheep without a thought or will of their own. A small but dangerous pack watched them from all sides, well versed in methods of torture and sadism. They drove the herd incessantly, backwards and forwards, with shouts, kicks and blows. And we, the sheep, thought of two things only, how to evade the bad dogs and how to get a little food. Now how can we stay forgiving and kind to the bad dogs that make such a hell inevitable? It would seem to me very difficult. I certainly doubt that I'll be able to. And yet there are a number of stories of Tibetans who have, after they were incarcerated and tortured horribly in communist Chinese jails. One f- such, for instance, is Paldon Gatso, whose story is told in the book Fire Under the Snow. The following, a condensation of what he told the American government's House Subcommittee on Human Rights, appeared in the New York Times on their April 11, 1995. My name is Paldon Gatso. I've spent three decades of my 64-year-old life in Chinese prisons and labor camps in Tibet. I became a monk when I was 10 years old. At age 29 in 1959, after the Chinese invasion of Tibet, I was arrested, accused of being a reactionary element and sentenced to a seven-year term at a prison, previously a monastery. We prisoners were yoked to ploughs like animals to till prison land. When we got exhausted, we were kicked and whipped from behind. Since we were never given enough to eat, we were forced to steal food meant for the pigs from the Chinese pigsties. We were also driven to chewing and eating all kinds of used leather items, bones of different kinds of dead animals, mice, worms, grasses. Political prisoners? In winter, we were suspended in the air and cold water was thrown on us. During hot summer days, cold water was replaced by fire underneath the suspended prisoners. In this position, we were lashed with leather belts, beaten with an electric cattle prod or iron bar. Self-tightening handcuffs and thumb screws resulted in several prisoners' hands getting cut off. In 1962, I escaped, but got caught near the India-Tibet border. My prison term was increased to 15 years. My leg shackles were not removed for more than two years. I completed my prison terms in 1975, but was not allowed to go home. I was sent to a labor camp. Prison life resumed. In 1979, I escaped. I put up posters calling for Tibetan independence. I was caught and sentenced to nine years in prison. We had to do filthy work, including the handling of human excrement to grow vegetables. A prison official poked me with an electric cattle prod, poured boiling water over me. For 24 years, I was never allowed any visits with my relatives. Guards in Gutsa prison raped nuns who were political prisoners and sexually violated them with electric cattle prods. In another prison, the chief administrator said to me, I will give you Tibetan independence, and he rammed the cattle prod into my mouth. When I regained consciousness, I found myself in a pool of blood and excrement 
and I'd lost most of my teeth. On August 25, 1992, I finished my prison term. Thirteen days later, I escaped from Tibet. That chief administrator, by the way, was a Tibetan. It appears that just as some of the worst kapos in the concentration camps were prisoners, the cruelest jailers in the communist prisons were themselves Tibetan. On asked about this, Paldon Gatso simply said that the system had made them what they were. Later, in 1997, Paldon Gatso gave an interview to Dharma Life magazine. When asked how he was able to avoid hating the people who tortured him, he replied, It is not that I was without hatred. Especially when I was being tortured by my guards, I had immense hatred against them because I was being hurt. But, as a religious person, after the event, I could reflect on what had happened and I could see that those who inflicted torture did so out of their own ignorance. As a religious person, I have to sit back and ask myself, what is all this? Buddhist teachings say, don't let your calm be disturbed and do not respond to anger with anger. He goes on to say, I was always able to practice Buddhism. It's not a question of merely reciting prayers and moving your lips. It's a question of inner development. Meditation can be done under any circumstances. When you drink tea with compassion, that is also meditation. You may be just walking along, but if you have a purpose and your mind is on the Buddha Dharma, that can be a spiritual practice. I was helped enormously by the teaching I had received on understanding human nature and also the little meditation I had learnt. This enabled me to control my body and my feelings. Now, of course, most of us are unlikely to land up in such terrible circumstances and will probably not have to go through the kind of suffering that people like Viktor Frankl and Paldon Gautz have endured. Well, certainly I pray that we don't have to. While we may not face quite the challenges they did, we will still come across people who appear wicked in nature and overwhelmed by violent negative actions and suffering. The question we face is how we will react, especially if we don't have anything like a spiritual practice to fall back on. Paldon Gatzer's mind is obviously very strong, but in his book, which I read a long time ago, he does tell of a monk who was well regarded as a teacher and who knew the Buddhist teachings well. This monk was in prison with him, as was an old farmer who had very little learning and not much formal spiritual practice. It was the custom in the prison from time to time to select one out of every ten prisoners to be executed. In one selection, both the monk and the old farmer drew short straws and were nominated for their firing squad. The monk became more and more terrified, begging the guards to let him off until he grew hysterical. Eventually, they had to tie him up and they tossed him in a corner. The old farmer, however, remained quite calm and stoical and recited a verse often quoted by Tibetans to the effect that it's better to live a short, beneficial life than a long, comfortable one. So I think it's difficult to say what we will do when facing such harsh people, even though we may have some spiritual knowledge and practice under our belt. I myself have no confidence that I will act compassionately and kindly if I found myself in such a dire situation. But now let's go on to the next verse in this text, which reads, When out of envy... 
Others mistreat me with abuse, insults or the like. I shall accept defeat and offer the victory to others. And this is the very verse you may remember that intrigued Geshe Chikawa so much that he went off to find out where it came from and how much it meant on the path to enlightenment. And he was told by Geshe Sharawa that it was essential. And that led him to studying and practicing mind transformation and eventually writing his own famous text, The Seven Points of Mind Training. Now, in his commentary on this verse, His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, If somebody insults, abuses or criticizes us, saying that we are incompetent and don't know how to do anything and so forth, we are likely to get very angry and contradict what the person has said. We should not react in this way. Instead, with humility and tolerance, we should accept what has been said. Where it says that we should accept defeat and offer the victory to others, we have to differentiate two kinds of situation. If on the one hand we are obsessed with our own welfare and very selfishly motivated, we should accept defeat and offer victory to the other, even if our life is at stake. But if on the other hand the situation is such that the welfare of others is at stake, we have to work very hard and fight for the rights of others and not accept the loss at all. His Holiness goes on to say that one of the secondary vows of a Bodhisattva refers to a situation in which you have to use forceful means to stop somebody who is doing something very harmful. Now this might appear contradictory to this verse in the eight verses of mind training, but His Holiness says it's not. The Bodhisattva precept deals with a situation in which one's prime concern is the welfare of others, he says. If somebody is doing something extremely harmful and dangerous, he means to others, it is wrong not to take the strong measures to stop it if necessary. Nowadays, in very competitive societies, strong defensive or similar actions are often required. The motivation for these should not be selfish concern, but extensive feelings of kindness and compassion towards others. If we act out of such feelings to save others from creating negative karma, this is entirely correct. His Holiness then goes on to tackle the question of whose judgment we should trust in such situations. Can we rely on our own perception of the world? That is not a simple question, he admits, and says, when you consider taking the loss upon yourself, you have to see whether giving the victory to others is going to benefit them ultimately or only temporarily. You should have to consider the effect that taking the loss upon yourself will have on your ability or power to help others in the future. It is also possible that by doing something that is harmful to others now, you create a great deal of merit that will enable you to do things vastly beneficial for others in the long run. This is another factor you have to take into account. And he quotes Shantideva's A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life when he says that we have to examine both superficially and deeply, whether the benefits of performing a prohibited action outweigh the shortcomings. At times, when it's difficult to tell, you should check your motivation, he says. We can perform some negative actions with a bodhicitta motivation and create a lot of positive potential, whereas if we do those same actions without such a motivation, we will just be creating negative karma. Although it is extremely important it can sometimes be very difficult to see the dividing line between what to do and what not to do, His Holiness admits. And because of this, we would do well to study up well on these things. The more you know about all of this, the easier it will be to decide 
what to do in any situation, he concludes. And at that point, we'll have to say cheerio until next time. Thanks for joining the program today, and I hope we'll spend more time together next week. As usual, please dedicate any positive potential from the program to the enlightenment of all beings. Thank you, and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.